Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News. We're a graduate student-led organization at Harvard University focused on generating discussions between scientists, other experts, and enthusiasts. We're back with a new episode of Sit and Listen, this time with a two-part series on Earth and space. In this episode, we'll discuss how learning about our own oceans can teach us about life in space, the benefits of space-age technology a little closer to home, and space as a final frontier or future landfill. This episode was written by Daniel Richard, Chad Stein, and Delphine Tripp. Special thanks to the Sit and Listen production team. According to the United States Geological Survey, almost three quarters of the Earth is covered by water, over 95% of which is found in oceans. How much do we really know about this massive part of our own planet, and how can we use this knowledge to find life in faraway places? While there are many theories about where life originated, one prominent one takes us to a hard, dark place, the bottom of our oceans at places called hydrothermal vents. The Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, a prominent ocean research institution, describes these vents as regions where magma comes from beneath the ocean floor and meets cold seawater. These places can heat up to around 750 degrees Fahrenheit. Boy, that's hot. All of this thermal energy allows for interesting chemical reactions to happen, including those that may have allowed some microbial life to begin. You might be wondering, what do our ocean floors have to do with space though? While we think of many planets as being dry, desolate places, discoveries over the last 20 years have shown us that many are not like this. In fact, there's a whole category of places just in our own solar system that are classified as being ocean worlds. It's in these ocean worlds where we can start to think about how we might find life in the cosmos. To learn more about this, I wanted to sit down with an expert. I sat down with Dr. Christopher German of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, whose scientists just over 40 years ago were some of the first to discover hydrothermal vents. Dr. German is a geochemist and has spent much of his career studying chemical reactions that happen at the bottom of our oceans at hydrothermal vents. Dr. German has been a pioneer in connecting the worlds of oceanography and astronomy, two fields whose scientists rarely spoke to each other just over a decade ago. He's now part of a major NASA project that aims to learn more about the ocean, these ocean worlds and the kinds of life that they might host. To start off, I wanted Dr. German to explain what ocean worlds are in his own words. If people are familiar with the idea of a tree line, when they have a mountain range on Earth, you know, there's, there's a place where the climate's just right. And if you go too high and too, too high altitude, there's a place where you just don't see trees and you just either have them or you don't. So there's a thing in the solar system called the ice line, which is basically from when, a, when the solar system first formed, there's places where water should have been, where it should have been too hot for water to hang around and it would get driven off. And then there's places where as you get further and further from the sun, that's where you expect the water to condense and, and crystallize out. So you know, we have, when we see condensation, we have formation of clouds. In the, uh, at the scale of a solar system, you get precipitation of ice and accretion of, of water that way. So where that exists on our, in our solar system is basically somewhere beyond the asteroid belt beyond Mars, right? So, so Earth is like a weird outlier in this system. 
Um, it's a place where there shouldn't be any water, according to the crude theory. You have to come up with special reasons why we do have water, because clearly we do. But but the rest of the universe makes a lot more sense, or certainly the rest of the solar system makes more sense in that places like Mars are places that have evidence that there was water once, but it also got driven out. And then as you get out to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, and then beyond that to Neptune and Uranus, you find a huge amount, you know, very large volumes of, of water ice. What's of particular interest is that we now know that habitability on our own planet is not restricted to where you can have photosynthesis and liquid water on the surface of the planet. You know, there, there are things that could be fueled by ge geological processes from the planet's interior at, a, at the interface between the ocean and a rocky seafloor. So to suddenly realize that we actually have multiple candidates of places that are geologically active places with oceans in contact with the rocky seafloor in our own solar system is quite different from thinking that the only place we could imagine there being life beyond Earth is on some planet orbiting some distant star that's just in that Goldilocks zone, as it's referred to, um, of it getting that exact sweet spot of where you've got the right flux of photons from, from the, the host star to keep water liquid at the surface on these other planets. So as recently as a decade ago, well, no, 20 years ago, as recently as 20 years ago, we could still have you know, we would still have said, well, the only way we could search for life beyond Earth is either you know, via SETI and sitting and waiting for radio tran transmissions to come and reach us, or we're going to need faster than speed of light travel. Right. And now, and, and suddenly that's a transformative thing is that today we could articulate it and say, actually, we may actually have robots that have left Earth that have already flown past five to ten perfectly habitable environments that could well have life there today. We just haven't stopped and looked. Because this field is so new, I was really curious to get a concrete example of what we've learned over the last 20 years. Dr. German decided to tell me about Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn that geologists and astronomers used to think was a pretty boring place. But it turns out, using surprising technology, they were able to find out that it was actually quite interesting. Then there was a tiny little moon called Enceladus, which is so small, it's basically, um, it would fit inside the North Sea between Britain and Europe. That tiny little batch of water, it, it could actually fit in there. And so it wasn't something that was like a high on the radar of things we should look at. But when they flew past it, they found there were actually jets of water coming out from its south pole. And there are these four really big fissures called the tiger stripes that cut across the, the south southern hemisphere. And when they flew past and imaged it, they could actually see, you know, kind of backed it, they could actually see there were jets of material coming out. And so again, it was a matter of, okay, what things do we have on board and what can we do? And so they were actually able to fly through those jets and actually get a, the composition of, of what was there. At Europa, it's inferred, you know, it just, all the logical science, they've eliminated all the other reasons why Europa behaves the way it does. The only thing that makes sense is that the, it has a liquid water ocean underneath. On Enceladus, it's even more definitive. It's quite a simplistic thing of you can get wet. Well, you don't, it's not actually wet because as soon as they evaporate into, they're evacuated into space, then they, you freeze. So you get these tiny little ice droplets. But that was what's really interesting there is that what really, um, just in the last five years, the results that came out were beyond saying there are these jets exiting from an ocean on Enceladus, the subsurface ocean is that as people have been able to analyze the chemistry work out what's there, they can actually say, well, there are actually mineral grains in there that are diagnostic of seafloor hydrothermal venting. 
and there's really interesting chemicals which are consistent with a particular kind of hydrothermal venting that I've studied where you can actually get organic, you can get spontaneous synthesis of simple organic compounds. And then there's actually been a third level of study that says actually there's like really big organic compounds in the same water that's got this salt and it's got the minerals in it. So there's at least one of these ocean worlds. It's not just a hypothetical thing of it could have all this habitability to it. It's, um, you know, for Enceladus, it's kind of been demonstrated that all these ingredients are there. Next, I wanted to ask Dr. German what life might look like on other planets. And especially if we, as people who have only encountered life on Earth, might bring biases as to what life could look like, and if maybe it looked really different in other places, like on ocean worlds. So that's a really good question, because um, I think that's that's one of the things we have to fight against. There's, there's there's lots of different ways that life can exist, right? And life doesn't have to be waterborne, and it doesn't have to necessarily even rely on carbon compounds. But we could make life easy for ourselves and just turn around and say, well, how about, you know, we know that carbon-based life forms in an aqueous environment thrive because we've got a planet that's replete with that kind of stuff. So that's really my contribution is not necessarily to think about all the different ways you can have life in the universe, but it's more a matter of like, well, what are the things I know as an oceanographer that I can actually lend? Now, now we know that there are oceans quite close to home. Let me try and help, you know, bring the oceanographic community to bear on this and, and, and how can we contribute? And one of the ways for that is that you don't have to have sunlight to derive, to generate or to fuel life. And so we do know that for our planet now. It wasn't always true when the first seafloor vents were found. This was something that was put forward. It was quite a fashionable idea in the late 1970s, early 1980s of like, oh, well, maybe you know, maybe these geothermal systems do recognize, do represent things that have been around since early Earth and could have actually hosted, you know, origins of life and, and stuff like that. For the large animals that we find around hot springs on our own ocean, which do, you know, they have hundreds of species not known previously to scientists, right? It was, you know, and, and they're different in different ocean basins. There's lots and lots of different adaptations. But for the large animals, one of the problems with them having anything to do with the origin of life is that they, their physiologies routinely seem to rely on there being oxygen in the ocean that they can then react with the reduced chemicals that are coming out of the, the hot springs. So the hydrogen sulfide and the methane and things like that. And the only reason there's oxygen in the oceans for them to actually have this high energy return, you know, the fact you can actually burn this stuff a bit like you know, sitting by the gasoline, that works in our, in our atmosphere because we have oxygen there as well. The only reason that oxygen is there is because of photosynthesis. So the large animals can't originate from that. But um, around the late 1990s, two things happened. There was exploration that I was working on, and then completely independently, there's work that was happening in sort of theoretical chemistry of early Earth and space, was making predictions of what would have happened if you had something like a hydrothermal system during the first half of Earth history during the Archean, when the planet's interior was that much hotter because it hadn't lost as much heat yet. And so the compositions of what was being erupted as lavas on, on the early seafloors would have been quite different. And it would have been more magnesium rich and it would have been more geochemically reducing. And so there were these predictions that came out in 1998, um, was the first paper I read, saying, well, if you ever had seafloor reactions through this kind of rock type, then at 350 degrees, you would spontaneously convert any carbon dioxide present into 
um, more complex organic compounds. And, um, and there might be hydrogen left over as well. And the reason that resonated was I had just been out the year before tracking down some vent sites in a weird place where I didn't think they should be. And we'd actually got to dive on them with some colleagues from France who brought their submersible for us to go and find the samples. And when we analyzed them, we found out that they had all kinds of weird, simple organic compounds in them that weren't normally in hot acid, hot spring fluids. Um, and the reason for that is they were actually hosted in exactly the same kind of rock type. I mean, this was, this was not because the earth was really hot in that place. It was actually cold. And it was not because these rocks were being erupted on the seafloor. It was because there were these deep fractures because there'd been such a long time since the last time there'd been an eruption of that location. The long fractures that actually slid rocks up to the surface of the right kind of composition. So these are rocks that in the modern day, they crystallize out and solidify more than six kilometers below the seafloor. But they slid such a long way along this rock that now hydrothermal vents were getting down and interacting with the same rocks. So we we'd stumbled upon something that we thought was pretty cool and interesting anyway. We didn't know it on the day we found them because they were in the wrong geologic place. They weren't anywhere near a recent volcano, but they looked just like every other black smoke or hot spring that we'd studied in the previous 20 years. But when we looked at the chemistry in more detail, they mapped really well to these predictions of what hydrothermal activity on the early Earth and Mars and Europa might have looked like according to this theoretical work. And so that really sort of spun up a new line of research for me of, ha, huh, so we could actually, you know, based on this, that that discovery I made was, was pursuing exploration for a different reason, but this now means we could actually target and think about this and go, well, where would you want to go and what would be the optimal thing that you would go and explore for to test these ideas? So that little vignette was the first sort of chink of armor. We could actually do things in oceanography that would actually help this exploration in space. And then, you know, that was a nice thing to know in the 19, late 1990s, right? But back, back then it was like, yeah, but maybe there aren't any oceans in space. Because, you know, by two, in, in, as recently as 2000, you know, two years after we've made those discoveries, that, yeah, but maybe Europa doesn't even have an ocean. Maybe it's just covered in glaciers with a brittle ice shell on the outside. And then 2001 was, oh, no, actually, it's a real liquid water ocean. And the only reason it conducts electricity is because it's salty. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, that's worth knowing. And then suddenly, like 2015, it's like, oh, Saturn has these ocean worlds too. And it's like, so then these other ones probably have it. And, and now it's, it's you know, gone the same logic as people have worked out where there are ocean worlds in our solar system. It's allowed the people thinking about exoplanets around other stars to go back and say, okay, so we, kn we know we've like come up with this very narrow definition of what the Goldilocks zone would be for where else might be habitable in the universe. But suddenly if you go from one planet in our solar system to maybe 20, and then you do the same thing for every other star system. The volumes of habitable space in our universe suddenly go up and up and up and up. So um, all, all because all because of this weird little process that nobody nobody knew about on our own planet until the 1970s. You know, oceanography had been going on for at least a hundred years before anybody knew there were these weird things on the seabed. Finally, the question I was most excited to ask after German: Does he think there, there is life in the cosmos? I think I do. I mean, I think um, the geologist in me, you know, it's it's an Occam's razor kind of thing. So from the sort of like my geological background, the first thing I would say is I am absolutely sure that there's some form of habitable environment at the very least. 
on these on these ocean worlds. Maybe on not all of them, but I can't imagine the ones where you have rocks and ocean together. It may not be the same kind of fluid flow as anything we found on our planet, but that's fine because I keep, you know, I found two different kinds of hydrothermal fluid flow that I didn't know about in the last 12 months. I haven't even been to sea. This is just looking at data from other cruises and reflecting on that stuff. I've realized there are places that I went to in 2019 or colleagues went to in 2019, which revealed, you know, there's so much of our own planet we haven't studied in the deep ocean, but we're at least that's that's I'm, I'm well schooled in the humility of discovering things I didn't expect that I know how to anticipate what else could be out there so there's definitely going to be the habitable environment so that's one one way that I come at it from a modern day like understanding modern day oceanography the other part of me is from from the sort of like the geologic record that complicated multicellular life forms may be very recent like you know the sort of pre-cambrian late pre-cambrian onwards now, the Cambrian explosion was defined based on hard-shelled fossils, but we know that there was the Ediacaran fauna and, and gelatinous things without hard shells a short while before that. But we also know at the far end that of the, the oldest life we have, you know, there was basically waterborne rocks and they had single-celled, there's evidence for single-celled life forms in those things pretty much as soon as the late heavy bombardment finished. So like my, my simplistic version is single-celled life is easy and multi-celled life is hard. So you know, the fact that single-celled life came into existence kind of spontaneously like that at the very start of the history of our planet, Occam's razor says, well, then why should it be any harder anywhere else? Why shouldn't it be just as easy if you've got water-rock reactions of the same kinds? Then I think there could be single-celled organisms everywhere, you know, Occam's razor would say the testable hypothesis is there's no good grounds based on the science we know today why there wouldn't be single-celled life all over the place in these other ocean worlds. And then it's like, okay, if you don't believe me, take me there and go, look, I don't mind. I'd be excited. I'd be excited to find it that we had an ocean world that was habitable and uninhabited. That would be a really exciting answer as well. I want to thank Dr. German again for sitting down with me. If you found this interview interesting, you can find the entire unedited interview in a supplemental clip. So, Daniel and Delphine, were either of you surprised to hear that Dr. German was so confident that there might be life on other places? I can't say I'm super surprised. Uh, I mean, I've seen um, some of the deep sea uh, videos that they've collected and the very, very strange, like, uh, sea slugs and, and like slimes and things that they find in... Uh, near deep sea vents do inherently look alien. So in my mind, I can't say I'm surprised that um, somebody who studies this could see this happening on other planets. I agree. Yeah, I think some of the things that they they discovered, you know, deep down in the ocean, they are quite alien. At least when you think about, you know, how aliens are portrayed in popular media. But I think in thinking about, you know, biomarkers and you know, mankind's quest to come up with a definition of life, how that might shape how we look for life. We might not be looking for red Martians, but we might look, be looking for like single-celled organisms or presence of water or other types of like biomarkers or like compounds more so than organisms. And it's definitely a shift in thought processes when it comes to the search for life. Yeah, and I imagine that's something that they have to think about a lot, just having only experienced 
you know, the kind of life that we see around us every day. How do you imagine a kind of life that nobody's ever seen before? Um, so, yeah, like Delphine said, I appreciated the fact that they come to it with such an open mind, but I imagine that's not an easy thing to do on a daily basis. Chad, that's a really good point. It's definitely the case that given that we don't really know what life out there looks like, we need to go back to basics, the basic building blocks of life that should be universal. In our quest to explore the cosmos and find life somewhere out there, we've actually had to push the envelope on developing technologies, both in getting to space and in detecting those sort of basic building blocks. Uh, these innovations have had unintended byproducts are actually a lot closer to home, often in the form of commercial spin-offs that can touch our daily lives in unseen, often unexpected ways. Now, some key spacefaring technologies have been around for decades and are exceedingly well known. For example, communication satellites, which you might be using to listen to this podcast right now. Uh, these have been around for decades. Uh, the first communication satellite was aptly named Early Bird. It was launched all the way back in 1965, if you can believe it. Um, however, there are some lesser known innovations and modern day amenities for which we owe our thanks to the scientific research and development at the heart of space exploration and travel. One of the most impactful space-age spin-offs may actually be the one designed to minimize impacts, a memory foam technology. First developed at the Ames Research Center in California in the mid-1960s, this was developed to protect astronauts from the G-forces they experienced during launches and landings. However, this technology was later adapted by private companies to develop the well-known temper foam material for commercial use. Shortly after they got their hands on it, these private companies had a second brainwave moment that led to them adapting this temperature technology as a soft cushioning material to protect not only astronauts, protect people from uncomfortable sleep. Subsequently, the incarnation of this technology that most people listening are likely aware of, some much more intimately than others, was born. Temper memory foam mattresses. Now, this past year, as you've likely been spending more time on such a comfy mattress, we've all become much more aware of just how clean our homes are. Whether it's wiping down groceries with disinfectant or religiously scrubbing common surfaces, stuff, bacteria, microbes growing on surfaces has taken up quite a sizable chunk of our collective headspace. However, for NASA scientists, this obsession with microbes is nothing new. The focus of Search for Life on Other Planets has been on finding evidence for surface contamination, as it's likely that humanity's first close encounters with the third kind will be in detecting evidence of microbial life. The Perseverance rover is equipped with the aptly named Sherlock instrument, which is a high-powered ultraviolet laser that detects signatures of the basic building blocks of life, things like nucleic acids and amino acids that make up DNA and proteins. The Sherlock technology was actually developed by a small California startup, Photon Systems, in 1997. This was one of the first outside contracts to be made by NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, who saw the potential for the detection of such biomarkers in their astrobiology missions. Fast forward to today, where in addition to developing the Sherlock technology, Photon Systems has commercialized it, developing handheld sensors that monitor personal exposure to organic contaminants as well as lab equipment that actually studies things like food samples for bacterial and viral samples. As one can imagine, this has made its way into a lot of different industries, including food processing, wastewater treatment, and pharmaceuticals. 
In particular, the ability to detect viral contamination with high sensitivity has been of great interest to researchers studying coronaviruses in the lab. We can credit such beneficial applications to the fact that sometimes, for example, in the search for life, very big scientific discoveries can come in very, very, very small packages. On the subject of small packages, another important clue for microbial life, whose detection on other worlds has relevance to our own, is that of methane gas. On Earth, microbial activity is by far the largest source of methane emissions, which some mo microbes actually produce as they metabolize. Thus, for a while now, NASA scientists have been developing technology to develop methane emissions, with the idea being that methane emissions on other planets are likely the consequence of microbial activity. This led to a new kind of detector, a tunable laser spectrometer, or TLS, that is able to detect extremely, extremely minute traces of methane gas. This TLS instrument was sent along with the Curiosity rover in its recent mission to the Mars surface. Now, NASA scientists, recognizing the benefits of high-sensitivity methane detection, have refined the technology for commercial applications, developing a handheld version of Curiosity's methane detector and further developing a version that can actually whiff methane emissions when strapped onto a drone that's flying overhead. This technology has been taken up by the oil and gas industry, who use a combination of ground and air-based TLS sensors to monitor their sites for traces of methane gas, protecting local communities from dangerous methane leaks, as well as helping companies to monitor their methane emissions and impacts on climate change. Climate scientists have also taken interest in this as a way to rapidly, cost-effectively measure methane across very large areas, particularly in remote places such as the now-warming Arctic tundras. In the end, it's turned out that this sort of era of space-age technology that we find ourselves in has lent itself to a lot of perhaps unexpected developments that manifest in at least part of our daily lives. Delphine, Chad, can you think of uh, any space technologies that sort of unexpectedly have touched your lives that I guess you're cogniz cognizantly aware of? My first thoughts are of how space exploration and space technologies have kind of like encouraged the imagination of people here on Earth. Of course, I start thinking about like these different types of space food, space ice cream, or like the technology when it comes to putting together the actual like space suits, how they're, you know, sometimes they're reflective or like white or like this bright orange and how that's been incorporated into fashion. Yeah, Delphine bringing up space food immediately brought me back to uh, field trips to museums as a elementary middle school kid where we'd always get very excited by trying the different kinds of space food and how, uh, how odd they seemed. Uh, but obviously, they're very important in their uh, proper context. Uh, in terms of things that affect me on a daily life, I am a big user of satellites in the form of GPS. Uh, so I'm often walking around trying to find my way using Google Maps or one of those uh, services that wouldn't be possible without the advent of satellite technology. Yeah, yeah. You guys both make really good points. Although one common uh, thread uh, that I see both uh, in both of your um, topics is that you're thinking of, you know, engineering problems of, of creation, you know, building and developing things, whether it be fashion or, you know, space foods or satellites. People, especially engineers, think a lot about these sort of problems, but far less often 
do the layperson think about what happens after you build something? So a rocket engine, for example, where does a used rocket engine go after launch? What happens to a satellite once you stop being able to use it uh, for cell phone use? We often worry a lot about, you know, litter on the side of the roads and, you know, stewarding our, our own planet. But nobody ever seems to think about stewarding just outside of our planet. Now, I say nobody, but Delphine, I'm given to believe that you're one of those rare people that cares. Definitely. More and more, I've been thinking a lot about space junk, especially with these stories in the news of commercial efforts to get people into space. There's then mention of a lottery that go into orbit. And for a while, people have been talking about booking tickets on a shuttle to the moon or even perhaps in the future to Mars. And so as we hear more about increasing commercial efforts, it's important to think about how can we keep space clean and sustainable? And what can we do now and in the future to make sure that it's accessible to everyone? So let's talk more about space junk and the problems that arise when we're not intentional with the way we go about space exploration. There is a growing junkyard in space that's been causing concern amongst the public and scientific community that what was once considered the final frontier may soon be a future landfill. And just some quick working definitions. So space junk or space debris is any piece of machinery or debris that's been left by humans in space. We'll be talking a lot about satellites, which originally were a celestial body orbiting a planet, so nowadays, when we say satellite, we really mean any artificial body placed into orbit around the Earth or the Moon or any other planet in order to collect information or for communication. And so the history of satellites in orbit begins in 1957. If you're familiar with space history, you'll know this story starts with independent efforts by the USSR and the US to launch the first satellites into orbit. Soon afterwards, a dog named Laika was launched into orbit by the USSR, and subsequently, the first cosmonauts and then astronauts were launched. Of course, since 1957, the number of satellites in orbit has changed dramatically. So over the last 60 years, at least 9,033 satellites have been launched into orbit, according to the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs as of December 31st, 2019. And if you think of how the number of objects per year has changed in those 60 years, a decade out from 1957, one to two objects being launched per year rise to about 100 launched per year. And then for the next five decades, 100 to 200 objects are being launched per year. But in 2017, 2018, and 2019, this number skyrockets to 600 objects being launched into space in 2019 alone. We can think about what has caused this upward trend. And when you consider the utilization of space, there are four broad categories to classify the type of object. There's amateur, civil, defense, or commercial. And although the first satellites launched were mostly for civil or defense purposes, in the last few decades, there's been a significant increase in the commercial utilization of space. And a byproduct of this is that there's been a rise in the number of useless objects in space. These useless objects are known as orbital or space debris, or more colloquially, space junk. And they've been the topic of discussion amongst space scientists for the last five decades. 
and more and more recently, they're becoming a concern to the public. So let's first discuss the growing concerns of the public, which is the rocket debris problem. And this is the notion that, hey, there's all this junk in space. We know that some of it will re-enter orbit. Most will burn up, but not all of it, you know, others might not. How likely is it for debris to fall back down to Earth? And for debris that re-enters Earth's atmosphere and lands on Earth, how likely is it to strike an individual? The general consensus is that space junk hits Earth often, but not often people. And it's important to note that not all objects are the same when it comes to how long they will remain in orbit before they re-enter the atmosphere. Debris or satellites left at higher altitudes of 36,000 kilometers where communications and weather satellites are often placed in geostationary orbits can continue to circle Earth for hundreds or even thousands of years reliably. In contrast, some objects in lower orbits of a few hundred kilometers can return quickly. They often re-enter the atmosphere after a few years and for the most part, they'll burn up so they don't actually reach the ground often. But in the last 40 years, about 12 million pounds of man-made space junk has survived re-entering Earth's atmosphere, according to the Orbital Debris Center. To give you some examples, in early May 2021, there was a story in the news about a rocket that had been sent into orbit by China as the first of 11 missions that are part of the 5B launches to complete a Chinese space station. The report was that a rocket booster, which is a 20-ton object from this first launch, was plummeting back into the atmosphere in an uncontrolled way, but that there was no need to worry. And in fact, according to Dr. Jonathan McDowell, who runs a website that tracks the world's space launches and satellites, and is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, the danger of this object hitting Earth somewhere populated and striking an individual was one in many billions. And this likelihood comes from the fact that 70% of Earth is made up of oceans, and of the 30% that is land, humans tend to congregate into cities and live by water sources, so most areas are uninhabited. In fact, 99.9% .9 of land on Earth is said to be unoccupied by a person at any given time thus putting the risk to inhabited areas extremely low, but not zero. The Chinese rocket booster that I mentioned earlier did in fact re-enter the atmosphere and crash into the Indian Ocean. However, about a year ago, a rocket of similar type that was also launched by China fell back to Earth and entered over the continent of Africa. Fortunately, there were no casualties, but there was property damage reported and similar events have happened before. In March 2021, strange lights were reported over Seattle, and these were from the re-entering of a SpaceX rocket booster into the atmosphere. For the most part, the rocket broke up and burned up. However, the entire fuel tank from the rocket landed on a farm in Washington state. In 2003, pieces of debris from a Russian satellite almost hit a passenger plane flying between Santiago and Auckland. And in 1979, the NASA Skylab space station's uncontrolled atmosphere plummet had some pieces slam into Australia, where luckily there were no casualties. A year prior, a Soviet remote sensing satellite plummeted into a barren region of Canada's Northwest Territories, where, you know, fortunately, it didn't hit Toronto or Quebec, which are quite populated areas but it did spew radioactive debris over several hundred square kilometers, which was an environmental disaster. 
If you ask experts, there's only been one report of a person being hit by space junk. A woman in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was struck on the shoulder in 1997 by a small piece of debris from a discarded piece of a Delta rocket. She was unharmed. Unfortunately, no deaths yet. But as we send more objects into space, the chances of getting lucky yet again will only decrease. So now let's turn and discuss the concerns of space scientists, the issue of space and orbital debris. So as early as the 80s, the Kessler effect was discussed, and this is the concept that once past a critical mass, the total amount of space debris will keep on increasing. So as the density of debris increases, so does the likelihood of collisions. And with each collision, more debris is generated, and this begets even more collisions and more debris and a chain reaction. And in essence, the cosmos could become closed off to space exploration. Now, of course, this postulated situation would be an extreme, but some experts worry that a variant of this could become a problem one day, and that steps should be taken to avoid it from ever happening. There are about 2,000 active satellites in Earth's orbit. 3,000 dead satellites, 34,000 pieces of space junk larger than 10 centimeters, which is about the width of a grapefruit, and about 128 million pieces of space junk larger than one millimeter, which is about the width of a wooden pencil tip. So, although the cosmos aren't yet closed to space exploration, these numbers paint a picture of why even today space debris poses a significant risk to operational satellites. The risk of space debris—it's due to its high orbital velocity and its uncontrolled nature. And there have been incidents, multiple incidents, in fact, where satellites have been struck by space debris. As the ISS orbits, it's often hit by tiny fragments of space debris from satellites or lost equipment. If the object is large enough to be detected, the station executes an avoidance maneuver. And since 1995, 25 debris avoidance maneuvers have been done by the ISS. Within just the last year, three have been performed. If an object is too small to be detected, all bets are off. In May 2021, a piece of space debris too small to be tracked hit and damaged a small section of the ISS. The part damaged was the Canadian Arm 2, which has been a fixture on the ISS for 20 years, and is a multi-jointed robotic arm that can assist with maneuvering objects outside the ISS, like cargo shuttle or performing station maintenance. Fortunately, the damage was small, and the arm is still functional. Similar event happened in 2016, where a tiny bit of debris, possibly a paint flake or small metal fragment, no larger than a few thousandths of a millimeter across, but a crack in the window of the ISS Kabbalah module. It's important to note that the Kabbalah's massive 80 centimeter windows are made of fused silica and borosilic glass that can help it withstand the force of an impact with space junk. But it's to an extent; it has its limits. An impact like the one above poses no real threat to the ISS, according to the European Space Agency. But debris up to one centimeter could cause critical damage, while anything larger than 10 centimeters could shatter a satellite or spacecraft into pieces. This, of course, would generate thousands of smaller and even more dangerous objects in space that would orbit for several years to decades. The near future promises even more satellites in orbit. As we seem to be entering a new phase of space exploration, or organizations like SpaceX, OneWeb, Boeing, Telesat, 
and others have made plans to launch more than 15,000 satellites into orbit. Thus, the total number of space launch objects in the next 10 years may become more than the total number launched in the past 60 years. The United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space has paid particular attention to the issue of preventing and minimizing the creation of space debris. They issued a set of space debris mitigation guidelines in 2007 that should be considered for the mission, planning, design, manufacture, and operational phases of spacecraft and space vehicle orbital stages. They set seven guidelines, which I'll summarize briefly. Limiting debris released during normal operations, minimizing the potential for breakups during operational phases, limit the probability of accidental collision in orbit, avoid intentional destruction or other harmful activities, minimize potential for post-mission breakups resulting from stored energy, limit the long-term presence of spacecraft and launch vehicle orbital stages and the low Earth orbit region after the end of their mission, and lastly, limit the long-term interference of spacecraft and launch vehicle orbital stages with the geosynchronous Earth orbit region after the end of their mission. Already a few different companies and agencies have brainstormed some innovative approaches that can be used to remove space junk. And it's important to note that some of these ideas are already beginning to be realized after being in development for many years. And so one example is the snagging and moving a space junk approach, which is to use capture mechanisms to pick up debris, such as through the use of a net, a harpoon, a robotic arm, or even tentacles. A demonstration mission to test an idea to clean up space debris was successfully launched in March 2021. This was known as LTD, which stands for End of Life Services by Astroscale, a Japan-based company. And its mission is to exhibit technology that can capture space junk. The spacecraft works by attempting to attach itself to dead satellites and push them towards Earth to burn up in the atmosphere. The spacecraft is not designed to capture dead satellites already in orbit, but rather future satellites that would be launched with compatible docking plates. The European Space Agency also plans to send a self-destructing robot into orbit in 2025, which the organization's former director general has referred to as a space vacuum cleaner. This is part of a larger project called Active Debris Removal slash Inorbital Servicing, or ADRIOS, which is focused on stabilizing the orbital environment through actively removing large debris items. Another method is through the use of electricity. So using an electrodynamic tether whose current would slow down the speed of satellites or space debris. Slowing a satellite's speed would make it gradually fall closer to Earth where it could burn up. And in 2016, Japan's space agency sent a 700-meter tether into space to try to slow down and redirect space junk. Another method is to knock down junk with a net. And so this would be using a network of nanosatellites connected with a piece of electrically conducing tape that could knock satellites down as they pass through Earth's magnetic field and produce voltages. In 2018, a device called Remove Debris successfully cast a net around a dummy satellite. And so these efforts could prove increasingly important as private space ventures continue to clutter Earth's lower orbit. Going into the future, it's very important to ensure that all of humanity can continue to use outer space for peaceful purposes and socioeconomic benefit now and in the long term.
This will require intentional and international cooperation, discussions and agreements designed to ensure that outer space is safe, secure, and peaceful. So Chad and Daniel, what do you think about this goal of trying to ensure that outer space is safe, secure, and peaceful for the long term? Yeah, this is definitely something I hadn't put much thought into, but I'm glad that there are people doing this. Um, just out of curiosity, if things were to go as they are now, how long would it take for something like the Kessler effect to become a significant problem for us wanting to traverse into space? It's actually predicted in the next few years that several hundreds, if not thousands, of satellites will be launched because of these ongoing efforts by private companies to commercialize space. So certainly, it's not crazy to think that if there's no intervention at all to try to prevent the pollution of space, to try to remove space junk, that maybe within our lifetimes we could see this this effect happening. Certainly, there's a lot of of agencies out there to to stop this from happening, or at least to try to come up with innovative solutions. And I would hope that, you know, similar to this issue of climate change, hopefully we can take steps to try to ensure that that we can sustainably use space and not destroy it in the way that we have almost destroyed our own planet. Huh, that's so interesting to think of. Uh, in my mind, I'm just imagining, uh, obviously there's a big role as you talked about in your piece about sort of government regulations and government guidelines to sort of force companies uh, to behave um, in a you know space responsible way, uh, but in a similar sort of climate change story, there's the part that the governments force companies to do, and then there's the part that consumers themselves force co companies to do. Like I'm not going to buy um, maybe a coffee from a coffee shop if they don't offer a reusable mug option, for example. Uh, do, you, do you see any role or, or any big tidal shift in thinking that could happen on the consumer level to sort of push these commercial space companies to be more responsible? It's definitely interesting to think about because, yeah, if someone says to you, you should never buy an aluminum can because it's horrible for the environment. You could just say, okay, I won't buy aluminum cans. But when it comes to these types of private agencies where the way they interact with the public is really through investments that are made in them, and perhaps people that are also hoping one day to be on one of those commercial flights to the moon, I think it would really take a shift in public opinion and also some education campaigns to put people in the right space to know what the problem is and know that it's it's quite urgent to deal with it such that people can make educated decisions about maybe I won't invest in that company or maybe if I'm at a shareholder meeting, I'll sign a petition to make sure that this is put on the agenda. But it's it, sometimes it can feel like it's a bit disconnected because really... I think it really is a privileged part of the population of Earth that's even able to think about these types of issues. Most people who would be affected by this aren't actually able to be part of the discussion. So I definitely am interested in seeing how the conversation goes and uh, what pressure government agencies, especially these like international agencies, can put into place to try to provide incentives for private companies to to be more sustainable in their use of space. Certainly, when I, uh, I remember uh, when I was a kid uh, growing up with the likes of, of Al Gore and, and his documentaries, it felt at the time as though 
climate change was this big nebulous problem that could never be could never be resolved. It, it wasn't really something that I could do anything about. And we're seeing, uh, especially in the last uh, year or two, uh, this this shift where now people seem to be taking the Earth's uh, well-being into their own hands. You're starting to see activist shareholders increase uh, interest in renewable energy, renewable cars. I'm hopeful that there is a quite important role for the consumer to play uh, in sort of protecting space in a similar way that we're hoping to protect the Earth. Yeah, I, I think another, to follow up on Daniel's point, I think it's also perhaps a good thing that consumers aren't so entrenched in maybe some kind of habit around obviously space travel because none of us have done it yet. Um, so maybe people will be more open to understanding how the unintended consequences can have significant impacts on the future. Whereas with something like climate change, perhaps it's harder to get people to change their daily activities. Thanks so much for joining us for this exciting series by Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News. A special thanks to our entire podcast team, Delphine Tripp, Daniel Richard, Samantha Tracy, Priya Varira Gaffin, Edward Chen, and me, Chad Stein. If you were interested in hearing more about ocean worlds or about astrobiology in general, check this feed out to hear an unedited interview between me and Dr. Christopher German. Feel free to send us any comments, questions, or topic suggestions at sittinpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-I-T-N podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>